afternoon. I'm Charles Lee. And I'm Elise Kovic. And this is the Grok Science Show. Today we welcome authors Mark Aronson and Marina Boothouse to talk about their book, Sugar Changed the World, a story of magic, spice, slavery, freedom, and science. All right, it's coming right up here on the Grok Science Show. Uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back. Mark Aronson and Marina Budos discover that they each had sugar in their very dissimilar family histories, they were inspired to trace a truly world-spanning story of this singular substance. The trail led them from religious ceremonies in India to the sham fairs of France and from Christopher Columbus to the true and largely unknown story of Atlantic slavery. As the authors discovered, 96% of the Africans sold into Atlantic slavery went into the sugar lands and only 4% to North America. Yet it was the very popularity of cheap slave-grown sugar that gave British abolitionists the tool to fight to end slavery worldwide. In order to replace the freed Africans, the English then brought indentured workers from India, including Marina's own great-grandparents, to cut cane in their far-flung colonies. And then it was the beatings of one of these such Indian cane workers that inspired Mohandas Gandhi to come up with some of his philosophies. With Sugar Changed the World, Aronson and Buddhas revealed how the quest for one sweet substance enslaved and freed millions all around the world. So, Marina and Mark, welcome to the Grok Science Show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Oh, we appreciate you joining us. So now, you two are a married couple, and I'm just wondering, how did this come up in conversation that your family histories really stem from such a similar route? I mean, was it <laughs> over coffee and the New York Times on a Sunday morning? <laughs> it may have been a Sunday, but it was actually in Jerusalem. We had long known that Marina's family had come from India to the Caribbean, to Guyana. Mm-hmm. But we were in Jerusalem meeting with part of my family, and I asked a question about a mysterious aunt of mine. I I come from a a long, long line of rabbis, but one of the eldest son of one of these rabbis, my uncle, had married a Gentile, and I was asking a little about her. And I learned that her grandfather had been a Russian serf Hmm. who had invented some process for dealing with beet sugar, that was so efficient and so successful that he bought his freedom. And his actions, his invention, and his freeing of himself and building his fortune took place essentially at the same time as Marina's uh, great-grandparents were getting on a boat and sailing from India uh, to the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. And so we here we had, as you said, the most dissimilar families that you could imagine, linked by two versions of the same substance, spun around the world, their fortunes changed, Mm -hmm. and we thought, well, you know, that's really interesting. You know, what is it about sugar? What is this thing that that has had such a powerful effect immediately on our two families? But we had a sense from that little beginning that we weren't just talking about two random families, but, but really about a lever that exercised Uh, a pull and a power uh, throughout the world. Now, so your book, it it clearly illustrates sugar's impact on history and how science helped 
dictate and mold history. And um, one of the stories that, that I found really interesting was about Napoleon's sugary history right. and his relationship to root vegetables. Um, right, you, and it's all because... Tell of, me more, you know, yeah. You know, essentially he was trying to get his wedge into the market because the British dominated. And it's, it's out of this political rivalry that he was looking for an alternative because they so were dominating the world market with this cane sugar. And so that drove him to, to, to um, I guess, in effect, sponsor this, um, this research into another way of finding sugar and extracting sugar. Why couldn't yeah, we just they're, they're get out? actually two beats in that, beats, but the way <laughs> in which Napoleon lost his cane sugar was because the Haitians achieved their freedom. Haiti, the half of the island of Hispaniola, which we now call Haiti, mm-hmm. was the richest sugar-growing area in the entire world. Um, in fact, it was because of Haiti that Napoleon tried to get a hold of the middle of North America to feed and, and, and supply his sugar factory. But when the Haitians achieved their freedom in 1804, now uh, poor Napoleon had no access to cane sugar. Mm-hmm. But he had learned that in 1767, a German scientist, you know, this is sort of pure enlightenment science, had figured out that beet sugar, as you say, a root vegetable, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and also he worked with parsnips, uh, sugar beets, and cane sugar, and he found that they're chemically identical. And this was the first time in human history that we, instead of looking at where does something grow, or where is it from, or what does it look like, we were able to isolate what are the chemical components so that you could substitute this red beet, or it was sometimes white, grown underground in northern climates for a tall grass growing in tropical climates. Yeah, I mean, it really is sort of the beginning of this notion of extracting, extracting for a particular flavor, which is something that will then obviously transform food and transform manufacturing at a later date. But this is, this is a really important node in, um, in that history. I know. I remember reading something about the age of honey and then the age of sugar, right. which then led into the age of science. Um, this well, this is this goes hand in hand. Um, can you help me define those ages? And yeah. yeah, I mean, one one thing that's interesting what you're saying, you know, the drive to extract a flavor is because by this time, of course, sugar and sweetness has been this has become this commonplace flavor that everybody wants, and of course, there's now greater and greater and greater demand for that flavor, but. Going backward in the clock, there's a, prior, there's a prior era where sweetness doesn't come from cane, okay? It's coming from things like honey. It's coming from these artisanal sources mm-hmm. um, on a much smaller scale. And at that time, of course, sugar is, or sweetness is not something that is, has such a broad usage, but it's an accent. It's a flavor. It's, um, it's a right. spice in, mm-hmm. in essence. What, what we're calling the age of honey is really where you relied upon and were tied to where you lived. Mm. You, you, the food you ate, either you grew or a neighbor grew, the area in which you lived. Because so, if you think of honey, 
Honey tastes like the flowers that the bees visit. Sure. It has a very localized taste, and also the ancients, the Greeks and Romans, thought of a beehive as sort of a perfect model of society. You know, it's all these workers loyally serving a queen, and that was sort of the image of what life was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. We all cooperate, we, we, you know, we tend our place in life, everything stays as it is, and we produce this little bit of sweetness. The age of sugar, all of this is changing because by the early 1800s, it was cheaper for Europeans to get sugar from the Caribbean and, importantly, tea from Asia than to grow their own food. So in the age of sugar, you're now having the beginning of this sort of global plantation specialized economies where you're no longer relying on a local flavor. You're no longer assumed that you're always going to do what your parents did. Now you have whole specialized parts of the world feeding other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. And that's the age of sugar. In the age of science, you even go one step further. You no longer need these vast plantations to produce cheap sugar. You can produce cheap sugar from beets and later on from high fructose corn syrup or Mm -hmm. later on from the pure laboratory and produce Splenda. Mm -hmm. And so here and now there's a whole new organization of how we expect to live. It's no longer our local flowers. It's no longer the distant plantation. It's just the wizardry of a laboratory. Taking it back to the beginning of what you guys call the age of science, this is right around the time when serfdom is coming to an end and science is truly beginning to blossom. Right around that time in the Ukraine, Mark, your family, this is the time when your distant, distant uncle. Right. Yeah, so tell me the connection about family, sugar, science, and serfdom. You know, the thing that struck me that was so interesting is in many ways, sugar led to this horrible enslavement, and it did. You described Mm -hmm. that 96% of the some 12 million Africans who were enslaved through sugar. But sugar was also, beet sugar, post-Napoleon, was a new crop. Mm -hmm. And new crops were experimented with by more progressive nobles, nobles who were willing, let's say, to free a clever serf. So they It came into Russia not as it did into the Caribbean, where it brought with it people in chains. The way it arrived in Ukraine were with the people who were willing to say, well, maybe serfdom isn't the way to go. Maybe, you know, we would do better with people who actually had an incentive to grow something new than if we just merely repeat the ways of the past. And so that's how... Yeah, it was very much a cusp moment, in a sense, Mm -hmm. in in terms of history and also in terms of discoveries and and new technology that's being brought to bear in agriculture. One of the most interesting stories we ran into was of this man named Norbert Rilo. Norbert Rilo was the child of uh, a white planter in New Orleans and a freed freed African woman. Mm -hmm. And he figured out, and Marina understands this better than I can, so she can explain it, but that the way in which sugar was being processed was incredibly wasteful. That you were boiling and boiling and boiling all this sugar syrup, Mm -hmm. and that all of that heat 
And all of that energy was just evaporating into the air and being a big annoyance. And so he invented what was called the, the vacuum, vacuum pan. method, yeah, which sealed it into these cylinders, right? It was, or these, they're almost like big, in those days, I mean, they, we still use vacuum pans, mm-hmm. and, and they've taken on all different shapes, but in those days, you, if you could almost ma- imagine a sort of double boiler, you know, a seal or a sealed wok. Sure. And so it would trap the steam and the, and the hot, the heat within mm-hmm. these boilers. And so it would raise the temperature very high, and then they could continue this heating process within kind of hot pots in a way. Mm-hmm. And then there would be like a spigot at the bottom, and out would come the first liquid that would come down into yet another boiling fat. So it intensified and held on to the heat rather than, as Mark said, you know, in the old days you would have these vast, almost boiling pots that were open Mm -hmm. and everything would evaporate. Sure. Um, And so here you have a man who is the product, even though his mother was freed, I mean, he was the product of, of, of slavery, the product of slavery coming to Louisiana, yet he was this very, very bright person, this engineer, who invented this process which took sugar to the next stage in its development. So that's that perfect sort of crossing point moment between, you know, the feudal, the enslavement, the barbaric treatment, and enlightenment, science, machines, you know, trapping the energy of nature and making it work for you. And it's within the personality of this one man, Norbert Rilo. He moved to France. Um, he did move to France. Yeah, and there, there, was, uh, there were problems. A lot of people claim that his invention was theirs as well. Yeah, there was a lot of controversy, uh, people claiming, oh, I thought of that. Well, you didn't think of that, I thought of that. Mm-hmm. And as the story goes, he, he, he was this very, very bright guy, and, and he was feeling very thwarted and frustrated in sugar work. And at least as the story goes, although there is, there's a woman at the Smithsonian, a curator named Deborah Warner, who's actually investigating this right now as we speak. Oh, really? But uh, he, uh, the, as the story currently goes, he then became an Egyptologist and went on to translate hieroglyphics. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if, if he frustrated in one way, area, he turned his skills in, in another. But uh, as I said, Deb Warner is right now doing some more research on Norbert Rilo. All right, so one of your family members, and I don't remember which one of them, I think was able to answer the question that I'm about to ask you. So beets, beets are pinkish purple, and they're used for sugar. How does one get beet sugar, which would be pinkish purple, to look like cane sugar? Well, again, according to the family story, and here I have to say I'm off. Uh, you know, I am a trained historian, so at this point I have to describe this as a story and not a certainty. It's fine. He, 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 this uncle, the, the serf who, who gained his freedom, actually invented a process mm-hmm. for doing that. My uh, understanding is that the color actually isn't even that pinkish purple, that actually after it goes through the process it wasn't a very nice color. And so this even, and then it would, they would this process he invented you know, then replicated what people are used to when they get their sugar. You know, just before we came on the show, I, I checked the website because I was, wanted to check a couple of science facts about <laughs> sugar. And one thing I noticed, that I, I believe Europe mm-hmm. produces more sugar than anywhere else, but that's all beet sugar. Right. Are you kidding? Oh. Yeah. 
Yeah, if you yeah, go to much France, much of the sugar in Europe will be beet sugar, whereas you know we we certainly have quite a bit of cane sugar in North America, for instance. Though we have some beet sugar that is grown in nor- places like North Dakota mm-hmm. and California, actually. I always, whenever I'm in, in Europe, I, I always stock up on sugar because their packaging is adorable. <laughs> in France, when they come in those little envelopes, oh, just... Yep, that's all beets. You're, you're having beets for supper. <laughs> wow, I didn't think I liked beets. Um, <laughs> and now you know. <laughs> okay, so you have probably heard this a lot, but I found that your book really reminds me of Mark Kurlansky's book, Salt. Yeah. I hope that's a compliment because he's I, a friend of ours, so it certainly is. Oh, okay. good, good, because I love salt, and it was just such a fascinating read. So many years ago, when it first came out, you you go on a voyage, and it takes you to so many different places, right. and to find how they're all connected. Now, your book is just like that, but one thing that I noticed that's different about this in comparison to salt, and well, I like this a lot, is that there are so many wonderful archival illustrations and pictures from everywhere. Yeah, that must have been so much work. Mark, are you uh, an archivist? <laughs> no, I'm not an archivist, but you know, I've worked, I've been making books, nonfiction books, for 25 years, and I love having a lot of illustrations when I'm reading nonfiction. Mm -hmm. I feel really annoyed when there are none or when they're all gathered in the middle and, you know, you have to save the center of the Tootsie Roll for when you get there. And my feeling is if there are magnificent illustrations, let's look at them. Mm -hmm. And And they're very much a part of the story and and the rhythm of the story, you know, as you're discovering it. So, you know, from the get-go... When we actually sat down with our editor to draw out what we hoped for this book, we were always really clear that we wanted it to be a lavishly illustrated book, that we wanted people to have a pictorial sense of what we were talking about. And I'll actually add, for your listeners, we've added yet another dimension, which is if you go to our website, which is sugarchangetheworld.com, we have now added sound. That is to say, we've found music and dance that have come from all the sugar lands, both as the heritage of slavery and the heritage of indenture. And we thought that would be yet another way to add to to recounting this story, to let you actually hear and see some of the life that came out of this relentless and, and brutal work. You know, the thing that I also really enjoyed about this book I am speaking a lot about the positive aspects of this book, and by no means... Okay, I was just about to say, do you guys sugarcoat anything? I can't believe it. <laughs> Nonetheless, you know, you do touch on a, quite a gruesome history. Right. Um, but one of the things that you are able to do is you are telling a story of world history, yet you made this into a very personalized story. And I don't think I've ever come across a book like that, a world history book that's personalized. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, when we said sugar changed the world, we were really, the the tension we always felt we, we had in this book and what we were very aware of is we wanted to, since we began with two intimate stories, right, two different people, sets of people whose lives had been changed by this one substance, we really always wanted to keep that focus, this way in which people's lives 
the worlds they came from were utterly changed. And, of course, those are the more vast and epic <laughs> swells of history to tell about. So that was really always an objective in the book, that we wouldn't lose sight of the people whose stories needed to be told. And, you know, I will say that's a huge challenge when a good chunk of this story is slavery, where the voices of slaves are not something that have been written down or carried on easily. And so that was our challenge in writing this book. But I I will tell you one thing. You know, we were just in India and uh, spent some time there. Marina's been many times, but this was the first time for me and for our boys. Mm -hmm. And one thing I feel now in the world as it is now, where we both can visit many places and have Internet connections with many places, if you start looking in anyone's life and you start to open up and look at the connections, it's going to lead you around the world very quickly. And if you start to trace out those links, whether it's through someone's ancestors or through their work or through the ideas that shape them, you will soon find that this interconnection, this, this way in which the personal leads to the global, is not just true for us and is not just true for sugar. I think it's sort of where we are right now. And it's exciting. It's exciting that we're no longer sort of trapped by telling just our own family stories or just our national histories, but we're really starting to see how interlinked we are and have been in the past. It's, it's quite true, and you guys do a fine, fine job of that. Okay, well, unfortunately, it is time to wrap things up here. And I I really, really enjoyed talking to you guys. Um, I want everyone to go out there and check this out. It's, it's, It's actually a relatively quick read as well. You can... I, I didn't put it down. Uh, <laughs> the title of the book, Sugar Changed the World, the story of magic, spice, slavery, freedom, and science from our wonderful authors who have joined us today, Mark Aronson and Marina Budos. And if you guys have a couple of minutes, sure. will you answer some questions for the Grokotron? We will try. Oh, good. All right, here's Charles. All right. Well, it's time to play our game. It's called the Grokotron 5000. It's our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. And today the Grokotron 5000 has chosen the topic, Pour Some Sugar on Me. (laughs) (laughs) So for the falling five individuals, the Grokotron 5000 would like to know if you would rate them as perfectly sweet, saccharine and bitter, burnt and caramelized, or just add a tad more sugar will make everything all right. So are you ready to play the game, the Grokotron 5000? Can we just get those categories one more time? Yeah, write them down, Marina. <laughs> <laughs> or you can make up your own, too. Yeah, seriously. We, all right, okay. We're easy like that. But here, perfectly sweet, saccharine and bitter, burnt and caramelized, and just a tad more sugar will make things right. Okay. All right, your first person, um, Pierce Morgan. I would have to answer, no clue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, yeah, he, he took over for Larry King on CNN. Yeah. You know, I must have, uh, uh, have to say... Uh, <laughs> well, maybe we should say a tad more. Since he's a tad only more just, since we had no, no, and no since reference. And he's only just taken over. We have no reference. All right, how about, All right. How about you could say Larry King, then? What about the retiring yeah. Larry King? Ah, Larry King. Now, that's interesting. What do you think? Burnt caramelized, Mark? <laughs> yeah, burnt caramelized I'll go with. <laughs> Yeah, he's been around a while. You know, the edges have been allowed to kind of crisp up. <laughs> yeah. Sort of has his routine. Yeah, yeah. I, I think he, he, he had his stay, and, and I, I sort of remember the suspenders more than the man. <laughs> okay, our second person. 
The big O, Oprah. Ah! Exactly. Oh, boy. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, you, Marina, you get to vote on you that. Know, gosh, um, I think perfectly sweet. I think she, she does what she does well. Okay, yeah, can I, I tell I, you something, I Marina? Yes, you're one of two people who have had anything positive to say about Oprah. <laughs> and I thank I, I, you. I she did a good. I think she did a good gig. I, I give her credit. She yeah, did a lot for. I, I she did a lot for adult fiction. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true. She got everyone reading. That's right. Okay, uh, baby Doc Duvalier. Oh boy. <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy. Bitter, you Bitter, know, yeah. Crushed. We'll go right back. That's an easy one. Bitter. <laughs> yeah, like the, how about swept under the rug? Yeah. Oh boy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Best replaced. Yeah. All right. The only thing I can say is I think unless he has some grand plan here, this was one of the stupidest things you could possibly yeah. do. Yeah, I, I think best best put in a little bitter packet and put back on the plane. <laughs> uh, and, and in exchange, all of his fortune shipped back to Haiti. That would be very good right now. That would be very good. Okay, so let's see. Oh, Charles, go oh, ahead. How about, how about number four here? Uh, it's the uh, comedian Ricky Gervais. Oh, Ricky Gervais. You know, okay. I know so little about <laughs> Yeah. It. We're really bad on pop on culture. On pop culture like this. Okay. Um, I saw there was something about him in the Golden Globes, but I didn't know what it was, so... Oh, boy, we're... We're, we're really bad. We're I'm groping sorry. here. No, sorry. you're not. Don't worry. Well, okay, here, we'll <laughs> yeah, replace him with... On honey. Okay, well, Julian Assange, how about him instead? <laughs> he belongs with Papa Doc, in my opinion. I, I, I would yeah, sweep him really off. Yeah, he's a hero in our household. Actually, I, I would sweep him off to his to his you know bunker in uh, in in Switzerland and make him watch James Bond movies for the rest of his life. That actually doesn't sound bad for me, though. <laughs> I like James Bond He's movies. Trapped in Switzerland watching James Bond movies. That sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> okay, all right. And uh, finally, number five, it's the gal who's going to make all the other girls uh, jealous, Kate Middleton. Oh, Kate Middleton. I think, oh, dear. Let me think. I guess perfectly sweet. I guess she is. I guess she is. It, you know, it all depends on how long her mother-in-law sticks around. <laughs> 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 well, but, uh, I'm sorry that we're we're such uh, such nerds in terms of popular culture. You're not nerds. No, don't worry. I probably the problem here. I'm kind of a pop culture dork, um, and, and and probably not the healthiest place to be. But anyway, we do want to thank you for coming to the Grok Science Show. And um, in the future, please come back. Tell us what you're working on. We okay, absolutely we will. will. Thank you so much. All Thanks. right. Well, have a wonderful day. You too. All right, bye-bye. Okay, bye. All right, and just listening to both uh, Mark Aronson and Marina Budos talking about their new book, Sugar Changed the World. I never knew sugar was so sweet, (laughs) but with such a dirty history. Oh, boy. Sticky sweet. I know. Mm-hmm. Sugar coating. I... Okay, I, let's wrap this one All up, right. Charles. Yes, indeed. All right, we got to thank our. Wait! Oh no! You know what? Mick, Mick, Ugh. Mick, Mick, Mick. Yes, you know who we're talking to. Right, Mick. Thank you. You totally get it, <laughs> and we appreciate you for getting it. And we appreciate the fact that you comment on our blog. So please, everyone else, be like Mick. Go to www.grox.net and check out 
everything about our site and then also comment on the shows tell us what you like tell us what you don't like tell us what you think about us and tell us if you have any um suggestions for any future shows indeed and we also uh give a shout out to uh wrnclp and uh, wmxt for picking up the show and broadcasting as well so uh thank you to them well this is uh the grok science show uh, I've been your host, Charles Lee. And I have been your host, Elise Kovic. What would we do without Elise Kovic? Wow, seriously, I... people. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the show would take off. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, everybody, thanks for listening to the show. Thanks for listening to the podcast. And we will see you in a couple of weeks. Oh, and by the way, Charles is about to post The Sounds of Science. All right. Yes, The Sounds of Science will be on, on the web for you to listen to. For all the people who enjoyed it during its original broadcast, you can hear it over and over and over again. Maybe even cry yourself to sleep by it. Mm-hmm. I know I do. Uh, contact us here, science at grox.net. We're on the web, www.grox.net. Uh, Facebook and, and this Twitter thing again. I don't do that. We're trying to get the tweeting going. I don't tweet. Nobody. All right. Twitter, uh, we're tweeting, tweeting, twittering, whatever the verb is. Do uh, check us out there and be back in two weeks. More from the world of science. <laughs>